So we're returning to our series in Colossians this morning, Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 24 to 27. And the title for this morning's message is, Am I Missing Out? Am I Missing Out? Here is what Paul says, beginning in verse 24. Here's God's word to us this morning. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Am I missing out? Am I missing out? It's a question, I think, that troubles most of us, if not all of us, at various times and in various ways. Tell me you haven't experienced some of these these kinds of thoughts. What if I'm missing out when I don't get invited to the events and the parties that other people seem to get invited to? Am I missing out because I don't look like other people or talk as well as other people talk? What if I'm missing out because I don't have the money that others have or the things that they have or the skills they've acquired or the holidays they go on? Am I missing out maybe in my home life because I live on my own or because my family isn't as easy as other families appear to be? What if I'm missing out in my work life because I somewhere along the way chose the wrong career path or made the wrong decisions? What if I'm missing out in my job because my job isn't nearly as satisfying or fulfilling as other people's jobs seem to be? Those are just a few examples from everyday life lived in this world. What about when the fear of missing out, though, begins to invade our faith? and encroach on our walk with God, then I think it gets even worse. What if I'm missing out, we wonder, on the fullest Christian experience? What if I failed to do something or someone failed to tell me something important along the way, something that would have brought me to a much happier and more fulfilled place as a Christian today? Perhaps we wonder why it is that that mature, calm, and collected Christian that we one day hoped we would be never exactly materialized now that we're 10 or 20 or 40 or 50 years into our Christian walk. How did I miss out on becoming that person that I wanted to be, we think? Did I miss the secret memo on how to live a happy, victorious Christian life? What if that church down the road has got something that we haven't got here? Something we've been missing out on for all these years. Maybe I should have been across there with them all along. And then I'd be in a much better place personally and spiritually today. Can you relate to any of those troubling kind of thoughts? Worse still is how these thoughts get amplified even more when trials and sufferings get added into the mix. Whether it's persecution or sickness, loneliness, or abandonment, relationship troubles, or parenting troubles, tiredness, discouragement, or just long, drawn-out periods of spiritual dryness. 
when trials like those come, then it's more tempting still to think that something must truly have gone wrong, that somehow our Christian experience really isn't what it ought to be. If you, if you can relate to any or most or even all of these things that I've just been describing, please know first of all this morning that you are not alone in this room. You're not alone in thinking such things. As I thought on these things this week, I'm drawing these things out of my own experience, out of my own heart, the things that I think. And I guarantee that the people around you think the same things and go through the same struggles and concerns and worries about missing out as well. We are in a room full of people who get this to varying degrees, although perhaps we rarely admit it to one another. The Colossians, too, were also susceptible to the very same kind of fears. And it's clear in this letter that they, too, found themselves questioning at times whether they truly received all they'd, they needed. If they weren't, in fact, missing out on some vital Christian ingredient. It's a bit like when someone packs you a packed lunch. You're off somewhere, and someone says, oh, I'll put a packed lunch for you to, for you to put, I'll put it together. You won't have to worry. And you set off all happily, and it's only a, just heading up to lunchtime as your stomach starts to rumble. You start to panic. What if they haven't given me everything I'm going to need? And in the same way, all of, almost all of us receive and start out the Christian life happily. But it's only later on that we start to panic. What, what if I didn't receive all that I was going to need? What if I didn't pick up all the right things at the start? What if there is a fuller, richer, more glorious Christian experience just waiting to be discovered if only I could unearth the secret or go back and find the key? And then here, in the face of all our doubts and fears and wanderings, we look down at our passage this morning. And do, do have it open. Look down at this passage this morning. We look down only to be greeted by Paul, who is neither fretting, nor regretting, he tells us instead he is rejoicing. Verse 24. Now, I think it's hard to imagine that any of us, humanly speaking, could have been worse off than Paul. He tells us the vast extent of his sufferings as an apostle of Christ in 2 Corinthians 11. But even just confining our attention here to his sufferings as he's writing this letter, he writes as one chained up incarcerated, stripped of all of his freedoms in prison. All because, only because he wants to tell other people about Jesus. Let's face it, if anyone would appear to not be living the full and abundant Christian life, if anyone might have warrant to think that something important was missing from their Christian experience, it would be Paul. And yet there's not even a hint of him thinking there's something amiss. Not a hint of him thinking that he has a deficient gospel. That somehow the lunchbox that was packed for him at the beginning has turned out to be half empty and there's all sorts of stuff not there. On the contrary, he says in verse 24, he's rejoicing. Rejoicing in his sufferings because he's suffering for the sake of others. He's suffering, he says, for the sake of the church. Now, whole books have been written to try and explain exactly what Paul means when he talks about filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And I don't want us to get waylaid on this this morning. 
I don't think it's central to this passage. It's not central to the, the, the point that I want to make today, that I want to speak about today. But just before we get into our, our headings for working through this passage together, let's just, let's just say, suffice it to say, he is clearly not suggesting in verse 24 that Christ's suffering in our place on the cross is in any way um, insufficient, that it falls short, that it lacks the sufficiency to save us. We sung this morning, it is finished. That was Jesus' cry. As Paul has already reminded us earlier in this chapter, we have already been fully reconciled to God in Christ. We already as Christians stand holy and blameless and above reproach before God in Him. So Paul is not saying in verse 24 that Christ's sacrifice was in any way lacking. What he, what he is saying is simply that like Christ, he also willingly suffers for the good of the church. He's following in Christ's footsteps. Unlike Christ, of course, he's not suffering to save them, but he does suffer in order to make the message of salvation known to them. What this teaches us as we sit here this morning, none of us apostles, I realize that, but what it teaches us is that Paul's suffering and our sufferings are not a sign of failure. If you're suffering in some way this morning, if your life is, does not seem to be quite going to plan, there are trials in your way. This tells us that it is not that something has gone wrong in your Christian walk. Our sufferings are not a sign that we're missing out on a better Christian life. Our present sufferings are in fact a powerful reminder, a reminder of the kind of saviour to whom we belong to and serve. One who came down into this broken world and endured suffering and sacrifice for the good of others. Our sufferings are a reminder of the one we follow while he was in this world, he suffered. And our sufferings are a reminder too that Christ is still with us when we suffer. Paul here reminds, reminds us that the church is Christ's body. Christ is the head. And as the head of the body, he feels what every single member of his body feels when we suffer. You remember Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego? Just like them, Christ is with us and with Paul most tangibly and visibly when we find ourselves in the fiery furnace of affliction. And so even in his sufferings, Paul rejoices. And even in our sufferings, we can rejoice. And Paul longs for his readers to rejoice with him. He writes to reassure and strengthen us. And in the remaining verses that we're going to look at this morning, really verses 25 to 27, he wants to tell us why it is that we really don't lack anything as believers. That there's no spiritual blessing that we're missing out on so long as we have Jesus. That's the overarching message of this morning's passage. That however we feel and whatever we're going through in our lives right now, so long as we have Christ, it simply isn't possible for us to be missing out. And to convince us of this, he, he reminds his readers of three things, three truths, three interwoven realities that are true of every single Christian believer. One past, one present, and one future. So there's going to be our three, our, the three 
points we're going to look at this morning from this passage. One past, one present, one future. First of all, he shows us our past certainty. Our past certainty, a mystery revealed. And uh, if you're looking at the headings up on the screen here this morning, they've all got exclamation marks after them. This shows something of my enthusiasm as I was uh, coming up with them. But I think it communicates something of Paul's enthusiasm that we get hold of these certain truths as well. Our past certainty, a mystery revealed. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the, the writer, evangelist, apologist, once spoke about the temptation to be in what he called the inner ring, to be accepted into that elite group of people, to be in on the special insider knowledge, to not have to face the terror, as he put it, of being left in the cold outside, ignorant and alone. Most of us, I think, enjoy knowing secrets. Is that, is that the case? Maybe. We love a good secret, the feeling that we know something others don't, that we've been brought into the know. And equally, most of us get worried if there's a secret out there that we don't know, especially if it concerns us, especially if it's something perhaps we really ought to know. I know some people, at least, absolutely hate the idea of someone preparing a surprise birthday party for them. So even that's a good thing, isn't it? But we hate the secrecy of it. We don't all like the surprise. We get worried when we're not let in on the secret. Just think about walking into an interview or an exam, worrying whether you've learned the right things. Have you got the secret knowledge you need to pass? Or worse, sitting in a home group, worrying that others seem to have their life more together, and you wonder if they come up with some kind of Christian secret. And what if I had it? What if I knew it? How might my Christian life be better if I could be let in on the secret too? Well, we've seen already in this letter that there are, there are telltale signs of some kind of false teaching in Colossae that some in this church were promoting some sort of secret. Some sort of hidden plan from God which only a few privileged and super spiritual people could discover. A secret key, if you like, to a holier, happier, more perfect Christian life. But a, a secret key that not everyone was allowed to know. So it's into that atmosphere of secrecy and confusion and worry that Paul writes in verse 25 with, with a forthright directness about the stewardship that God gave to him. Look at this, verse 25. It's a stewardship, he wants to assure them, that was explicitly intended to do away with all secrets. Paul's charge from God had been to make the word of God fully known. And what that means is, Paul is telling them, he did not hold back anything from them when he brought them the message of the gospel through Epaphras. They, the Colossians, have already received from Paul and, and Epaphras the fullness of God's life-transforming message. He made it known to them fully, fully known. Now, there had, of course, been a mystery at one point. There had been a mystery. He, he talks about it here. One hidden for ages and generations, verse 26. He's talking here about the mystery all throughout the Old Testament of how God would bring about his great plan of salvation for the nations. 
a mystery that even prophets and angels longed to look into and understand as they watched on in awe and waited. But Paul is very clear here now, the time of mystery is over. Paul assures them, the greatest secret of all has now been revealed to all the saints, to every single Christian believer. Matthew Henry once said, the lowliest saint, the lowliest Christian under the gospel understands more than the greatest prophets under the law. Isn't that incredible? It's talking about you and me. Every single one of us understands more than Abraham and Isaiah and Moses. Uh, Not, before we get a big head, because we're any cleverer or wiser or more worthy than them, far from it, but simply because, and, and this truth should never cease to amaze us, should always be in awe of this truth. Verse 27, God chose to make it known to us. The God of all the universe, the God of the the mighty wind that's been blowing us around all week, the God who created all things, chose to reveal to us the greatest mystery there has ever been. He has proclaimed to us the mystery of the gospel to give us, Colossians 2 verse 2, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. This mystery is Christ. So, if you've heard the gospel of Christ, then you've heard the secret. The veil has been lifted. The entire plan of God has been revealed before your eyes. Uh, It's like like a piece of freeware that's been published to the internet for anyone who wants to, to download it. And take advantage of it. There's there's no secret plan that was withheld from us when we first heard and responded to the gospel. We have God's own promise and assurance of that fact. You and I, we have not missed out. But not only have we not missed out on what we've heard, what we've heard, Paul shows us, is also glorious. Just look at the words, the the superlatives, I think that's the right word, the superlatives that Paul lays up in verse 27. He he describes it as the the riches of the glory of this mystery. The gospel that we have heard is not some unimpressive secret that's been revealed to us. Hearing the gospel is not like learning the recipe to a pot noodle and then spending the rest of your life wondering if there aren't perhaps some recipes out there for some better meals that will do us more good and taste far better. There is nothing more glorious out there that could ever be unearthed than this message about this Savior. There's nothing that compares to the riches of the glory of this mystery that God has revealed to you and me. And part of what lies at the heart of its glorious riches is the grand reveal, the pulling back of the curtain, that this message of salvation in Christ is offered and made available to all. That it's no longer just for one nation, but for all the nations. That it is a free and full salvation in Christ that no longer takes account of ethnicity or race or wealth or culture. It doesn't care about affluence or intelligence or gender. It doesn't offer some two-tiered segregated system. A message for level one Christians and then a a further mysterious revelation for level two Christians. The whole world, 
from the mightiest king to the lowliest pauper, is invited to discover for themselves in Christ a full and complete and rich message of salvation. Be assured, God is not keeping any part of this mystery, this message, back from us and under wraps. It's been published for all to see. And so, as Christians, we ought to be beware of anyone or anything that promises to reveal deeper mysteries to us besides what we've already received in the gospel. Now, certainly we can keep diving deeper into the gospel itself. We're invited to do that. But we never need look elsewhere outside of the glorious riches of the message once for all delivered to the saints. We should beware too. Beware too your own heart fooling you into thinking that maybe other Christians around you have got access to some kind of secret knowledge that you don't have. That somehow they've just worked something out. Somehow they've made some clever discovery on their own or it's been revealed to them from heaven that's made everything in their life click and fall into place. But you're on the outside looking in. You don't know how to get there. Beware thinking Beware beginning to think that perhaps your life is difficult right now because there's some extra spiritual source out there somewhere for you, but you just haven't heard it or unearthed it or looked hard enough for it yet. As Jesus himself once said about simply abiding in his word, he promised, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We have received the completeness of that truth in the message of Christ and his gospel in all of its divine simplicity and clarity. And so if we put our trust in his word, the truth has indeed already set us free. I'll um, I'll never forget um, how it was that God rescued me from growing up a Roman Catholic. Okay, so humanly speaking, I could have, well, I wouldn't have been stood here, but maybe I would have been stood somewhere with a big hat on and a funny gown, I don't know. Some of you would have heard me tell the story, but until I was four years old, my mum was taking my brother and I uh, along with her to our local Roman Catholic church, and the Roman Catholic church was uh, all about maintaining an air of mystery. There were smells and bells and some Latin and some rituals. Everything was deliberately unclear and vague and mysterious. And my mum, who'd grown up as a, as a Roman Catholic, didn't know any different, but she did begin to know that she was bored. She was bored with all the vagueness and the mystery. And so one day she just upped and left. And she took us with her, fortunately, uh, to a gospel-preaching Anglican church down the road, simply not for any particular spiritual reason. She just was bored and fancied a change. And immediately, it was like the thick drapes across the window had been pulled back. And the light of the gospel began to stream into her understanding. Here, finally, she had found not especially impressive people, ordinary people just like us, but people who believed that the mystery had been revealed. They believed that God had chosen to make known his glorious riches, not to hide them, that the word of God had been made fully known in Christ and that it was available to all who simply wanted to hear it and believe it. And so my mum heard it and she believed it and she was saved. And then some years later in that same church, taught that same 
wonderfully clear and simple gospel message by some very ordinary Sunday school teachers, I too believed and was saved. And you too, if you're a Christian here this morning, will have your own conversion story. Perhaps it's similar, perhaps it's different. But here is one thing we can all say with shared certainty about our past, that not a single one of us has missed out on what we heard. To each and every one of us who know Christ today, God's, glory, God, God, God's glorious mystery has already, past tense, been fully revealed. The lunchbox that you and I were given was not half empty. Of that we can be certain. And that is the first thing that Paul wants us to know this morning. But he's not done yet. He's not done yet. There are seven more words for us to explore right at the end of this morning's passage. Have a look at them now. The first three speak of our present confidence. The last four speak of our future assurance. First of all, our second heading for this morning, our present confidence is Christ in you. Think for a moment. What is, what is the profoundest experience of God that you could imagine a person ever having? At least this side of glory. What's the profoundest experience of God you could imagine a person ever having in this life? What one thing, if you could have it, do you think would be the richest possible source of spiritual blessing in your life? Every moment of every day. The answer is given to us here. The answer is Christ in you. That would be the richest possible source of spiritual blessing that any person could ever possess. And according to Paul, if you're a Christian, that is what you already have in you. You have Christ in you. Throughout the Old Testament, there were hints and shadows of this new covenant to come. One in which and it must have been so mysterious for the, for the Old Testament believers, one in which God himself would personally take up residence in each and every one of his people. It was this, this far-off promise, far off on the horizon, one that people could only dream of and hope that they might just perhaps live long enough to see. But now the new covenant has come. We live in a time when Christ has come and he has died and he has risen and he has ascended to heaven and then he poured out his spirit to take up residence in each and every one of our hearts. He lives in the hearts of all who believe in him. It's just as he promised in John 14. Do you remember his words there? He said to his disciples, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. We live on the other side of the will be. He does dwell in you. Jesus goes on, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because, because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. We will come to you and make our home with you. I know we know this, but can you believe this? Can you believe that this is true? The day has come. 
the Holy Spirit has been poured out. God in Christ is directly and personally present in our lives. Every moment of every day, his spirit literally dwelling within us. Surely this should banish forever any feeling that you, or, you, you and I are somehow inferior Christians. That somehow others around us have some better secret spiritual blessing that we don't have. No. I have Christ in me. You have Christ in you. And so does every believer. Now, I don't want to pretend to fully understand it, but we don't need to fully understand it for it to be true. There's a lot of physical organs in my body that I don't understand. In fact, if you knew my ignorance about the human body, you'd be, you'd be shocked. But I don't need to understand them for them to be there and for them to be doing their work. They're no less effective in doing what they're meant to be doing just because I don't quite know how it works. It is enough to know that Christ is in us. We have God's word for that, his promise. It's a, it's a major part, Paul is saying, of the mystery that God has now revealed to us in the gospel. So again, what could we lack or what could we possibly be offered to supercharge our faith? What could we be offered that we do not already have when we have Christ in us? The fullness of God's glory and power resides in him and he in us. Dick Lucas writes, the work of the Spirit is precisely to bring within our reach the heavenly blessings of Christ. It is by his power that Christ can be said to dwell in our hearts by faith. The ministry of the Spirit is nothing less than to bring us to Christ and Christ to us. Here then, Paul answers the demand for the richest experience of God that it is permissible for human beings to have. Quite simply, if you're a Christian, not only did you not miss out in the past, when you heard the message, you are equally not missing out in the present. As Mark Maynell puts it, whoever we are, wherever we live, whatever we have done, however often we have done it even, Christ has taken up residence in us. That's right, he says, the cosmic Lord, the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn from among the dead, the one who died for you and me, is present within you, Christian, as you read these words. And he's not embarrassed about that at all. He does not regard it as demeaning in the slightest. For when Christ looks at each of us, he does not simply say mine. He also says home. Christ in you is your present confidence. But it's also finally this morning our future assurance. So thirdly and finally this morning, Paul draws our attention to our future assurance, the hope of glory. Look one more time at his words in verse 27. He talks about the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now let's consider those, those final four words in two ways. First of all, they describe something that lies in the future, in our future. And second, they tell us that it's a future that even now is utterly assured. So firstly, the hope of glory is describing something that lies in our future. 
We have Christ in us here and now, but glory is not ours yet. It awaits us in the future. The gospel is good news of a great future. And in this fact lies a very helpful warning to us, especially when we look at our lives or maybe we're looking at Paul's life and we're wondering why, if Christ is already in us, why is life still so full of hardship and struggle and suffering? Well, the truth is that not all of the fruits of Christ's saving work are at our disposal to enjoy just yet. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, we have been born again, we have been, past tense, born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. And we think, yes, I want that and I want it now. But he says, kept in heaven for you. So a part of what is rightfully ours now, because we're in Christ and Christ is in us, is actually being stored up for safekeeping in heaven. We don't get to enjoy all the glorious riches yet. They're no less ours. The deed has been signed in Christ's blood, but the glory awaits us in the future. And that is how Paul can rejoice in his sufferings. Because Imagine, if Paul were to believe that Christ in us now meant glory now, then every hint of suffering and every twinge of heartache and weariness, every skirmish in the ongoing battle with sin and Satan would be crushingly disappointing. It's no wonder that if we're thinking in those terms that we will constantly feel like substandard Christians, like we're missing out on what other Christians have or failing to achieve what we think other Christians have been able to achieve. We, we, we will feel like something has gone wrong in our salvation. Here's Dick Lucas again. If we claim to receive what God has not promised, the result must ultimately be disillusionment. How different, though, is Paul's gospel? The experience of Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith gives not the possession, but the promise of full salvation. The greatest gift of Christ in the present is hope for the future. Since he is in heaven, our hopes are inevitably centered there. For this life, grace is sufficient. Glory belongs to the age to come. We must not, however, swing to the other extreme. Christianity is more than a hope, however glorious. It is even now Christ in you. Full salvation belongs to the last day, but a real salvation belongs to the Christian here and now. If a believer cannot yet say that he is free from the presence of sin, he certainly should be able to say that he is free from the penalty of sin. And by God's grace, it is his daily privilege to find Christ at work in him, saving him from the downward pull of sin. It is therefore an unbalanced Christianity, he writes, which takes either part of this twofold message to the exclusion of the other. Let us refuse a salvation which polarizes on now or then, but rather let us recognize both present and future salvation as our rightful inheritance. Which leads us to the second aspect of what Paul is talking about here when he talks about the hope of glory. Yes, he's describing something that lies in our future, but it's a future that is utterly, utterly assured. I'm sure you've heard it said before that Christian hope is, is not like worldly hope. We don't 
The Bible doesn't use hope like the world uses the word hope. It's not desperately hoping and keeping our fingers crossed for something that we really don't think is going to happen. It's not, oh, I hope I'll become a millionaire, or I hope I'll never get ill again, or I hope someone will just give me a mansion to live in this Christmas. The hope that Paul is talking about here is a sure and certain confidence. And it's a confidence that comes from the fact that what we're hoping for doesn't depend on us at all. We can't mess this up because it all depends on Jesus. Where he goes, we go. And he's already there waiting for us in heaven, as well as being here in us by his Spirit, ensuring that nothing can possibly wrench us from his grasp while we wait. John MacArthur puts it like this, Christ in us is the anchor of the promise of heaven, the guarantee of future bliss eternally. As Paul himself says in Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The promised Spirit, who even now dwells within us, guarantees our inheritance in glory. Think of it, says Spurgeon, glory for us poor creatures. Glory for you, sister. Glory for me. It seems a strange thing that a sinner should ever have anything to do with glory when he deserves nothing but shame. We are neither kings nor princes. What have we to do with glory? Yet glory is to be our dwelling. Glory, our light. Glory, our crown. Glory, our song. The Lord will not be content to give us less than glory. Grace is very sweet, though. Might we not be content to swim forever in a sea of grace? But no, our Lord will give grace and glory. We shall have glorified bodies, glorious companions, a glorious reward, and glorious rest. I hope that as we've listened to Paul's words this morning, I hope that you've been greatly reassured by what he said. That we have not any of us, any of us, in any way, missed out on anything of eternal worth. It simply isn't possible. We have not missed out in the past if we have come to know the wondrous mystery of the gospel of Christ. We are not missing out today in the present because Christ himself has made his home within us by his Spirit. And we will not miss out in the future because the promise of future bliss and glory is so utterly certain and sealed and secured. No one who looks to Jesus to save them ever truly misses out. But one final thing to say is that the reverse is also true. If you're here this morning and you've not turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus and his saving death, then right now you are quite literally on track to miss out on everything in the end. Your past and your present and your future right now are full of missing out on the most important life-changing realities that there are, but there is still time to turn to Christ and be saved. His arms are open wide to you this morning. 
through his words that we've been studying, he is inviting you to come. It's his desire to come and make his everlasting home in you too. And all that he asks you to do is humble yourself, seek his forgiveness, and receive him. We hope and we pray that you will. Let's pray together.